It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Imagine 50 Israelis and 50 North Americans living and learning together, creating an international community of Jewish diversity where both our similarities and differences have value. These are not your typical scholars in residence. They're high school seniors. The Chavuta program is a pluralistic gap year opportunity unlike any other. Combining nine months of study and social engagement, the Hartman's Chavuta gap year program in Jerusalem bridges language, demographic, and historical differences between young North Americans and Israelis. Students leave as a community of equals, ready to enter the next stage of life with confidence, conscience, and enriched Jewish identity. See how you can join us in Jerusalem next year at shalomhartman.org forward slash chavuta. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America, and we're recording on Tuesday, January 4th, 2022. I don't usually do this, but today's episode involves discussion of sexual abuse of children. Listener discretion is very much advised. You know, we have so much language of plague in our lives because of the last two years that we sometimes might be losing sight of those plagues that are already endemic in our society. Over the years in my position of leadership in the Jewish community, I've learned to stop being surprised when we hear the revelation of news of predatory or abusive behavior by a respected adult against children or other people vulnerable to his or her authority. I mean, we always should be disgusted and repulsed by it. And even if it's a common malfeasance, which it is, it's always shocking. But I guess it's the side of not believing that a particular authoritative individual can do something like this. Well, that's what always needs to be questioned. Because whenever we get too shocked by these news, we forget how power works and how easily power can be abused. I've also come to learn that it's really hard, just really, really hard to eradicate abuse. And that really the best that institutions and communities can hope for is to try to create enough culture change in a climate of sensitivity and awareness to make predatory behavior more visible and obvious, and then to train people to respond the right ways when it actually inevitably happens, to support victims, to engage law enforcement immediately, to suppress the instinct to protect the institutions or the perpetrators. And that's really hard work. For several weeks now, a massive story has been unfolding in Israel that is all the talk in Israel, as far as I can tell from afar, and especially in Orthodox communities, And that includes both in Israel and here in North America. And perhaps surprisingly, not that much of a news item for anyone else, including, I'm guessing, non-Orthodox Jews here in North America. The story centers around an individual named Chaim Walder, a rabbi, a therapist, and most famously the author of a series of children's books that it's an understatement to say were wildly popular in Orthodox and especially ultra-Orthodox households. The book stood out, and it's perverse, I think, now to think about this because They purported to give voice to children and the experiences and internal monologues of children in a society 
that is oftentimes normatively ordered around the authority of adults. In 2003, Walder received, and you're going to gasp when I say this, the Guardian of Children Prize from the Prime Minister of Israel. In November, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz broke the story of accusations that Walder had raped multiple women and girls as young as age 12 who had been under his care as therapy patients. Since the publication of that piece, the monstrosity of the horror has now grown to include over 25 victims who have stepped forward, including girls and boys as young as age 9. The case came before the rabbinical court in Tzfat, which heard testimony including recordings of Walder threatening his victims should they talk publicly about the abuse. Walder, by the way, refused to participate in those proceedings, but the rabbinical court anyway upheld the accusations as credible and began a cascade of public consequences, some of which had already started in public, including ostracism, the banning of his books, and more, and it ultimately led in December to the opening of an Israeli police case against Walder. Shortly thereafter, Walter took his own life. That was the week of Christmas in Israel. And an astonishing tragedy, which connects to what we want to really talk about this week, one of Walter's victims, uh, Shira Yocheved Horowitz of Blessed Memory, uh, died by suicide uh, shortly after as well, apparently in despair at the way that the Haredi public and many of its rabbis supported Walter. There's a lot here that's simple. But the complicated pieces that I want to talk about today with my guest are around the much larger conversation that this scandal opens up about how the Haredi community responds or doesn't respond in a moment like this about rabbis who quickly and rightly took action against Walder and those who dragged their feet initially or actually continued to dig in in defense of him. And perhaps the most stunning moment, and I say this not in a good way, was seeing the images first broken on Twitter of the chief rabbi of Israel. Uh, attending the Shiva for Walter, the power of the state intertwined in religion coming to pay respects to a child molester. And last thing, and this is a personal comment, I didn't know Chaim Walter and never knew about the books. As far as I know, I don't know any of his victims. In that sense, this is not a personal story for me. But I did get a few years ago a firsthand view of a rabbinic abuse scandal as a kind of whistleblower, and I remain wounded by that experience of running up against the way in which authority protects authority. And I also have plenty of people in my life who I'm close to who have suffered various forms of physical and sexual abuse. In that sense, these forms of abuse, or this story, feel tragically reminiscent of one of the most haunting verses in the Torah, Exodus 12:30, describing the peak climactic moment of the plague of the firstborn that God brings upon the Egyptians, striking death upon the whole society from the house of Pharaoh on down. I think about this verse all the time, Ein bait asher ein bo mate. There was no household in which there was not to be found a dead body. To me, this is the image of real terror, an unsparing plague that nobody can escape. So to talk about all of this today, I'm really excited to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Nahumi Yafi. Nahumi is a faculty member in the Department of Public Policy at Tel Aviv University. Her PhD is in political science from Hebrew University, and she was the first woman from the Israeli ultra-Orthodox community to achieve such an accomplishment. She is also a researcher on ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel at the Israel Democracy Institute. I met Nehomi when she was doing her postdoc at Princeton, and during that time as well, Nehomi spent time with us at Hartman as a David Hartman Fellow. She was previously also an advisor to the Haredi educational system in Israel, so she knows that system extremely well. And her work as a scholar focuses on the ultra-Orthodox communities, both in Israel and North America, looking at issues of poverty, especially as they're inflected by issues like gender and rabbinic authority. So first of all, Nahumi, thanks for coming on the show and, and for being willing to talk about this really 
tragic and, and quite sensitive issue. Thank you very much, Yehuda. Um, I want to start us off by, you know, a lot of our listeners will have heard Chaim Walder's name for the first time on the show, um, or will know about a scandal, but may not know how intimately Walder and his books are part of Haredi society. So maybe you could just start by telling us what what we need to know about Chaim Walder in order to understand the magnitude of the scandal. I think the depth of the tragedy is the Chaim Walder introduced psychology into the Haredi community. He was the first one speak about emotions, to take kids' perspective, to focus attention to their feeling, thoughts, world. He was the first one that legitimized it and made it into a conversation. He wrote over 80 super popular children and adults book, Yeda Colin, in Yeted Neiman, which is the elite newspaper. He was the spiritual guidance of the elite Lithuanian stream in Israel. So this is his public face. On a personal face, so many people knew him. And truth must, must be said, he helped a lot of people. So people met him in many very sensitive cross-sides in their life. When they were losing children, when they went through personal challenges, he was the face of it all. He opened up a center for childcare in Maybrook and he legitimized the language around helping, around therapy, around just acknowledging and being there for children. Mm. So putting the information we have about him, the data, it's, it's, it's people coming forth. And I'm going to talk about it in a minute that to some people, this wasn't coming as shock news. Putting together this saint, and this demon, just people personally, they, they lack the language, they lack the ability to just really comprehend it. So I think it's the deepest, deepest um, uh, shocking story that happened to the Haredi community. This is like overriding the Neuron story, which was a story where 45 people found themselves dead in a, in a trap down during Lagabona. Mm-hmm. So it's a huge story. But here's where things get even more complicated. People knew. Uh, I personally can say that I heard more than once rumors. But the rumors that were very spread is that he had all kinds of affair with women. And everything was in consent. And people were feeling okay. So he's not a saint. And he's not a tzaddik. And he probably should not be talking on behalf of Ashkafat Torah you know, the pure ideology of Haredi. But the crowd, the masses, didn't know about molesting children. Even like people that worked with him knew he had kind of like a shady part, you know, a little bit of a shade, but no one really really knew. Now it turned out that some people around him did know. And actually, he had some victims coming in front and suing him. And he had arrangement with those people and he paid money. And it turned out that he paid a lot of money to a lot of people all those years. And maybe the climax of it is that rabbis knew. And also there was probably a get that was given to a married woman where it said explicitly that she had an affair with him and she's not allowed to remarry, to marry him. Because this is a lachic thing that if you betray your husband, you're not allowed to be with the person you mm-hmm. betrayed him with. 
So it turned out that it's not just that he was a horror and he was like a demon. It's that there was a whole chain of silence around him. And people knew, very strong people knew, and they were covering for him for all sorts of reasons. So what you're describing are two, I would say, pretty common aspects of how these stories unfold and why they're so difficult. One is what we'll call the cognitive dissonance problem, especially with religious authority figures of how can I believe this about this person that I know and therefore I might be inclined, just this is a very generous read, I might be inclined to not believe it because the costs of believing it are just too great. And the second way you're talking about is there's always people know, it's never the case that no one knew. It's just that either they know a lot and they choose not to talk about it, not to disclose it, and then we have to unpack all of that, or they they can't quite put the pieces together to say what I actually know is evidence of something that is that is monstrous. So in that respect, it seems like you're describing something that's, I don't want to say common, but there are patterns that appear in other type of incidents. And so would you say that in this particular case, the reason for the obstacles is just that he was too valuable as an individual or as a figure? Um, first of all, we get it. We have to bring into the picture the fact that he was the one that everyone came to with their problems. He had a lot of power over people. He had everyone's secrets. He knew everything about everyone. So it was this, you know, uh, not of silence, a tit for toot, you know, people were covering for him and he was covering for them. I do want to leave like a little bit of room for doubt that no one knew the scope. You know, I know for a fact people knew that he had like a very immoral affair with many women, but to the best of my knowledge, people didn't know or people around them did not know about children. Mm-hmm. And maybe those who knew about the children just had uh, an agreement with him because he knew things about them. So it was like a lot of, uh, I'm sorry for saying it, but, you know, men covering for men kind of thing because mm-hmm. he had so much knowledge on other people. And a lot of good people were overlooking because they saw the good that he was doing. And that's the tricky part. He was doing some good too, a lot of good, yeah. not just some yeah. good. And not enough people knowing the entire scope. And not enough good people knowing the entire scope to really step in. And I want to say that when the story broke and the leadership right away took action, suspending from newspaper, I was quite surprised how quickly the first initial response was of the leadership. I thought they would take more time, but they were really very quick to act. But then a record of him talking to a woman and basically instructing her how to lie to her husband and how to lie to the base did and telling her if something is going to happen, I'm going to commit suicide and I'm going to make it even worse. A few hours after this video was like publicly released, he went to his son's grave. His son died out of cancer and was very tragic. And he wrote a lot about it and he shared his feeling and he made it into like a um, support group. So people knew about this really tragic um, episode of his son. He basically shot himself on his son, which is like so manipulative. But somehow it's, it's turned some of the rabbis to reconsider for a minute and say, hey, the man was not fully prosecuted. The whole procedure wasn't done and we were already judged him and maybe this was too harsh. Today, we know that people that were supporting him and it's a big political party behind him. We're going into rabbis and it was just 
you know, telling them like, we killed this, we pushed him into suicide. Mm -hmm. So we have a major rabbi who came out and said this most ridiculous thing that actually humiliating a person is worse than killing him. And those who humiliate do not have a portion to the well to come. And speaking Lashon causes death, <laughs> which is, <laughs> which yeah. is ridiculous. And I can tell you that this rabbi who is very old and is one of the senior rabbis, just he posted this and they made him this really big funeral and they wrote this eulogy on him. And, um, since we're talking about a lot of political powers that is involved and probably some other things that are there, a few other rabbis who wanted to go into this old rabbi and just to talk to him cannot get in to this very minute. We're still in the Shiva and we know of rabbis, really big leaders that are still being prevented from coming to this rabbi and to discuss it with him because we want him to come with the declarations that he doesn't back him. And I think there is so much political work of other men covering for him that they are really calling people, threatening people to just make people doubt. Yeah. You know, so they don't say, oh, it's not true. They're like, how do you know? Is their words against his word? It was published in the secular media. Aaretz wrote about it. It wasn't brought into a Haredi based thing because the based in Tzach was not Haredi. Rashmuel Eliyahu is not Haredi. So what they're doing now, they are sitting doubt in people's minds. Right. Just so I make sure I understand, your argument effectively is that had the process been borne out through the police investigation, et cetera, given the fact that there was initial responses, you know, like famously here in New York, one of the big booksellers, and the minute that the story broke in November said, we're not selling the books. And by the way, it's going to cost us a lot of money by not selling the books. Um, you think that had the process played out, had he not killed himself, had he actually had a police investigation, that the Haredi community would have kind of responded in the right way, but that the doubt gets seeded because of his death? Is that the, because it does seem like it kind of interrupts the I story. I want to be honest, and I think it's more uh, wishful thinking than reality. Chaim Walter is probably very demonic because he had this angelic side to him, because he was sensitive, because he was talking the language of acceptance, of seeing the other person, hearing the other person. I feel like it's it's just really hard to put the two together. Yeah. Um, people feel like part of their development as a sensitive human being is this person. So just it's really psychologically very hard to like incorporate. But I say it's a wishful thinking because I know that it just that's the way things work, you know, when there's a lot of power at stake. And when Chaim Balda holds such power, it's not so simple that he would be indicted. It's not so straightforward that rabbis would back off. It seems like we like open up Pandora box and we don't know which snake's going to come. And it seems like there's a lot of covering in the community, a lot of covering, yeah. for, especially for sex offenders. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit because... I'll tell you, Nehemi, the thing that's eating at me the most, I think I know the answer, but the thing that eats at me the most about this is in the Haredi community, one of the things that is most public and in so many ways admirable about the Haredi community is the reverence and love of children, of having children. The truth is it's more in Israel than it is in America, not just among Haredi Jews. There's like It's a society that's built around having children, taking care of children, et cetera. There's something that's just eating at me so much about this that like – you would think that anybody who is even accused of lifting a finger against a child in a community that purports to value children this way 
would be just destroyed, just demolished. And and the ultimate perversion of a character like Walter who was there for children, I mean, what is going on that that doesn't rise to the level of being able to create universal widespread repudiation? This person is not us. The answer for it is quite simple. Any ideology, not just a Haredi, any ideology around wealth, when their power is at stake with their own ideology, they throw the core ideas of their ideology just to keep the power. You can see it very clearly in Russia, communism. You can see it in China. You can see it all the big ideologies in the world. Once they are established, whenever their system and whatever their power is being threatened, the core ideas that led to this ideology are just gone in a minute, just to keep the survival of the power structure and to keep the system as it is. So that's the answer. Chaim Walder is the system. He is the system. He writes the Ashkafat He writes the ideology. He's backing up all the rabbis. He's the representative. And when he goes down, everyone is at risk. And the entire hierarchy is at question, which actually probably what's, what's really happening. You know, people really start to question authority. And the Haredi community just, you know, they just don't want it to go down. They do not want people to question authority. You know, based on everything that I've read, the statistics around child abuse, around sexual abuse, are no different in the Haredi community than anywhere else. They're essentially the same. Or more. Could be. <laughs> you probably know better than me, but that's the latest I read, is it's not radically different. But the response is the story. I mean, this is now an old story. There's a piece about it that uh, Sharon Otterman wrote in the New York Times almost 10 years ago about sex abuse cases in Satmar. And the issue is not that there's more. The issue is that there is a culture of silence that is pronounced in the Haredi community as well. So it's not merely a question of here's this individual who's upholding the authority structure. There is a larger body of concerns about speaking to the police or speaking out about that this happened to you. You want to unpack what are the various elements that go into what motivates the culture of silence? Okay, so first of all, it's the issue of sexuality. Sexuality is never discussed in the Haredi community. Today was a, a committee in the Knesset and uh, some uh, social workers were talking and they were explaining how complicated it for a Haredi child to come and give a testimony. And they say the simplest thing, you know, the children do not know the explicit names of their private organs. They don't know the names of it. We don't have a name for it. We don't call it. Okay. We don't relate to our body, even like in the most fundamental way. Above it, there is absolutely no sexual education at all. It's as if it doesn't exist. And in some places, boys and girls just being threatened not to think about it, not to want it, to see it as something goish, to see something as non-Jewish and something evil and something that you just don't do. Even when they get married, so they have like a training, a college teacher, like, you know, a bridal instruction and a groom kind of instruction. It's still very, very limited. And we have to be honest, sex is being really controlled. It's being controlled halachically, and it's being controlled in many, many, many ways. So the ability of people to really speak safely and openly about muganut, um, I don't even know what's the word for the English, but uh, you know, being aware and being able to protect yourself is just very nuanced. Now it's starting. It's actually started already a few years ago, like to talk about, to tell children, you know, that no one is allowed to touch their body. and 
but parents are, feel very uncomfortable. They haven't unpacked their own sexuality. It's a real issue, this sexuality in the community. So their ability to speak about it and to word it and to relate it is just very limited. So they just freak out. They don't know what to do about it. This is the first thing. And the second thing is, I think like in the Catholic uh, church, because I think, uh, you know, when you think about what's happening in the Haredi community, it reminds you of the Catholic uh, church stories. When you talk about holy figures, when you talk about um, rabbis, just putting the two together, you know, being a sex offender is just very difficult. It's difficult for adults. They can unpack it for themselves. So their ability to really give it over to children is just not there. Another thing is that Haredi community has a very complicated relationship with the state of Israel. And they are not fully citizens in a way that internalizing the civic law and you know the non-religious law as a law. So um, they feel some of the things needs to be unpacked and dealt with in the community. They think that being a sex perpetrator is like someone who doesn't overcome his yetzerara, his bad inclination. Like, you know, like he's, he's not a good Jew. They don't realize there is a whole felony. It's a criminal. And they don't realize it's a sickness. It's not a diet that you can control your food. It's a sickness. I understand. But this line of thinking, the relationship to the state of Israel piece is a little frustrating, right? Because I kind of understand it philosophically among diaspora Jews, Jews in New York, for whom relationship to law enforcement is part of a long history of skepticism of our community and law enforcement. We can do much more inside our community. There's even a whole halachic language about like handing over people to the secular authorities. But so much has changed in the last 20, 30 years. You more know more about this than anyone else around the Haredi community and the way in which they are, they'll never admit that they're Zionists, but in practice, they are participating in the economy of Israeli society in a totally different way. They are part of the political infrastructure of Israeli society. They are one of the most powerful forces in the electoral system. Like when is the the term is when is the Asimon gonna fall? About like <laughs> okay, so wait, I right? wanna... like like of of this is our system. Okay, so I think stories like this make the Asimon fall just because people feel it's beyond the community scope and ability to really deal with. But the Asimon hasn't felt. I mean, we saw it in COVID. Uh, and we see it again. Uh, it's just a demonstration for the fact that, you know, the mainstream Haredi community are not fully participating in the civic part of Israel. They don't see themselves as taking an active part in forming the state, being part of the state, um, being it lechatchila. Like intentional. They, they right? just, they literally, they haven't developed even like a religious way of talking about it. They either talk about it as if it was a hundred years ago. I can tell you personally that there's a book coming out uh, with big studies that I've done with IDI, and it talked about Israel, citizenship within Israel. And we were looking for a rabbi who was going to write a piece, an introduction. Couldn't find one. We couldn't find one for a long time because there isn't a developed religious language to really look at reality and say, okay, here we are, and this is what we think, and this is what we do. So the Irish speak like, we are like a hundred years ago, or they just speak, okay, it's imposed upon us. And this is the situation we found ourselves in. And now we're just reacting. So the whole relationship to the state is like, we never, you know, sorely we reacting because this state is not amplifying Jewish, you know, halacha or Jewish uh, tradition, which by the way, it's not true, but obviously it's for political reasons being kept this way. And so it's a much deeper problem. 
that wasn't solved yet. And I think like rabbis, some of them are realizing it, that really we are the victims of this thing. So Yeah, it's in multiple senses of the word. It's members of your community are victims of this, but it's also the reputation of the community winds up becoming devastated. I want to say something really disgusting. Unfortunately, some people don't care about the reputation of the, the community. They are so uh, insular in their own community that they feel like, ah, who cares what they think? To the extent they are so isolated. The Haredi community is, is large. It's over a million people now, and they're very secure in their own place. But um, some of them realize if we're not going to have law enforcement in our neighborhood, like today, the police is not going into some of the neighborhoods in Yerushalayim, and they're not going to some of the neighbors in Bechemesh. This is actually dangerous. You know, if there is no fear of life from the outside, we're going to be the victims. And people realize it. Maybe not deeply enough and maybe not seriously enough, but it's, it's a huge problem. So you talked about one side of the sexuality piece, which is people not talking about human sexuality, uh, culture of shame that's probably connected to sexuality. Or, you know, if parents don't learn it, then they may have a formulaic relationship to their own sexuality, but they don't certainly don't have the language to convey it to their children. There's also another piece of this story. I don't know how big it is. I'd love for you to share, which is for victims being sexually abused or treated in this way can compromise someone's marriageability. And it can be used by perpetrators as a threat against someone's marital prospects. I knew of a story in the Jewish community here in America. It wasn't Haredi. It's a modern Orthodox Jew. It was an open secret of a Jewish communal leader who had done this to a number of young women, had abused them in positions of leadership, and then said, if you say anything about it, you'll never get married. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's, it's the flip side of the sexuality piece. If there is one... One thing that through it, the Haredi community is being policed is the shidduch, is the matchmaking system, which so many decisions from when a child is being born is being made on this basis. Which school we're going to send them, which neighborhood we're going to live, what the people we're going to associate with. And so the reputation of a family is their children's marital status and chances. Again, today in the committee, in the Knesset, there was this social worker who came with this crazy story that they got a phone call of a woman and she said like, okay, I'm done marrying my 10th son and I finished marrying my kids and I want to talk about a sexual abuse that I had years ago and I just couldn't do anything about it. In other words, she had to wait to marry off her 10 children in order to be able to testify about her own victim. 10th child, right. Extraordinary. So um, this is an extreme story, but not unheard of. So keeping the family reputation is is the, one of the highest values. And whenever there is like a fishy story about a family, so the family's reputation is being um, questioned and their status is lowered, that's a policing system. So people won't go and report when they had uh, a girl who's been molested because, I mean, she's damaged good, or a boy. They don't step to think what's going to be the day after she gets married and she actually can usually have problems, you know, functioning as a full human being and having sex and being functioning human being. They don't think so far because parents' responsibility is up to their chuppah. Once they marry the child, goodbye. (laughs) So this is one of the big reasons why the silence is being kept. This has to do with other things as well. Uh, the ability of parents to really provide schooling that really fits their children, giving them more help during their childhood, allow them to express the uniqueness. That's a policing system. And uh, it's a system yeah. that it's, you know, the rabbis on Monday, on the day of the funeral, were talking about Lashonara, 
how gossiping is the worst thing in the world. And I was thinking, seriously, <laughs> no one would be gossiping. Haredi community is infrastructure is gossiping. They're actually relying on you to gossip on your neighbors and police them. So <laughs> you're pulling gossiping only when you want to keep the control over people. Well, but that's also kind of the trap of a halachic system, of a Jewish legal system, which is, okay, well, this is probably bad behavior. It probably goes against halacha in this way or another way. But I also have all of this halachic literature that tells you not to gossip and not to believe anything bad about your neighbors. In the meantime, so now I can pretend that I'm in a values tension between two things that are important to me instead of being able to say there are moral commitments, human commitments that just transcend all of this nonsense. And that's a, a real constraint around Jewish law um, is that – and, and even like I, I sometimes struggle with when rabbis who care about Jewish law use Jewish law to argue why these behaviors are bad. So like, oh, well, that I guess that's good, but you're in a discourse now that kind of, in some ways, it's blinding itself about what you're actually seeing in front of you. Right. And I always, I feel like uh, maybe we shouldn't be so scared of gossiping. A, we're doing it anyway, and we're doing it usually for bad purposes. And maybe we need to license some things, and maybe gossiping is a way to license some things. I, I feel like the Haredi community is so policed and controlled and hold all by norms, and it's really suffocating. And I feel like maybe more people should gossip, and then we're like, more people would realize that it's a, you know, <laughs> maybe that's the way to go. Yeah. So this is an interesting, actually, turn, and it helps us to bridge to gender, which I want to ask about here, which is post the Me Too movement, there was a quite a bit of talk around whisper networks, that whisper networks where it's, I can't say this out loud, but you shouldn't go work for that guy. You should always keep a door open, you know, that kind of trafficking and in information, which if you really know about something very egregious, whisper networks can be dangerous. Whisper networks can also be dangerous if you're communicating, but you don't actually know anything. But whisper networks have been means by which women have actually shared information, accumulated power, and protected themselves. So there's something, your language of gossip suggests that there's also a gender responsibility here, right, to a system that is overwhelmingly run by men and a system that even won't allow women's faces to be in billboards. Like, that, that gossip might actually be the gendered response by which you can create social accountability. Uh, I agree. And I can say that I told you that I, 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 I knew about some stories with Chaim Wilder. And the reason I knew it was exactly what you are referring to. Women that work with him told other women to just stay away, to just be very careful. This is like part of the, you know, I, I didn't have, it has like a professional name, but this is exactly what's going on. And I feel like there has been an awakening uh, the past few years. First of all, there have been a few organizations in the Haredi community, Telem, Lotishtok, Tahel, Magen, a few organizations that are dealing with the subject and raising awareness. There was a book that was originally written in America and then was translated in Israel, and the teachers started using in their classrooms to instruct uh, children. So there is awakening, but we're still very far from a good corrected place. It's a community that is really, there is a lot of control in the community. It's not that people have like free internet. It's not that people are exposed to other things in the world. So this is why I feel like um, people are just more vulnerable in a way because they're not connected by themselves. You know, they need the newspaper to tell them what's going on. I guess my last question for you, Nochomi, and I don't mean to suggest there's any redemption in this story. I don't think that there is. But there are some things happening underway around awareness raising around 
the desire to make this public conversation, to speak to the media, to come on podcasts, to to push, and to recognize that unless you do that, unless you allow it, these systems really. So I, I'm curious whether that correlates at all with other trends in the Haredi community. And I kind of want to end with what to watch for. What should we be watching, not just about this scandal, but about the social or political trends in the Haredi community that are also being raised up by a moment like this that might help us understand where this is all going? Right. I feel like uh, this Chaim Walder story would never happen 10 years ago. I think uh, the internet, you know, went like intervent, you know, went under the walls and gave a lot of people like new idea of an alternative life. And at the end of the day, the people that came and spoke to Aaron Rabinovich, the guy who broke the story in the Aretz, are all people that were exposed to the world and were just willing to do something about it. I feel the Haredi community is going through a tremendous change. We're talking about big numbers of people going to academia, people joining their force work, people are drafted into the army, people are just looking for more moderate kind of lifestyle. And people are demanding some answers and people are demanding a different behavior from their leaders. So you mentioned the story about Rav Lau, is the chief rabbi of Israel, went to the shiva of the Chaim Valder. And um, some people really freaked out. I mean, you're not a private person, you're a public figure, and you can't do it. To the extent that they went to the house and demand an apology letter, which he wrote. And he said, like, I went as a family friends. I know the wife. I know the children. I felt like, you know, as a person, I go. But I'm not supporting any of his things. And this would never happen years ago. You know, people wouldn't have the guts to question a rabbi and to demand from a rabbi an answer. And, but it's not all. People are demanding to see rabbis. They're demanding rabbis to condemn it. They keep going with this based in and they want to come up with like a psagdin on him. And in the past week, there are other perpetrators that their name came up. And as we talk now, there is today was like another article about this big radio famous figures that also molested kid. And there is a few cases in the police that just people just came forward and said, okay, this is this is what I know about this and this person. Please prosecute it. Mm-hmm. So I feel like um it's like a Aviva Haredi, the Haredi Spring. Uh, given his position was so legitimized and given he was a, such an authority figure and this was broken, people have more guts to question other authority figures. And um, it really got out of hand to this very minute, none of the Paredi prime minister published any, you know, any announcement, any letter, any note, but they're petrified. They're very patched, right? Because they're losing, they're losing the masses. People are just outraged, very angry. And they're scared for their children. They, they realize they are raising children in communities that can't protect them. So I anticipate a few things. I feel, first of all, some rabbi is going to start making a base in. There is already one base in that was very politically controversial. I think now is it going to be like a mainstream base in. They already talked that Chaim Kanievsky wants to open like Forum Takana. Personally, I wouldn't trust those guys. Sorry to say it out loud. Because <laughs> I'm just saying that if Chaim Waldo would be like a year ago, he probably would be one of the people in the basin. Be yeah. one of the judges on the rabbinical court. Yeah. Be even the basin of Chaim Kanievsky, when they said we're going to do it, wrote, we're going to have women social workers and women advisor on the community for women to give their sensitive testimony. 
This is the first time they realize we have to do it initially with women having a position in it. So it's Malach Ra Oneh Baal Kofo Amen, like a bad angel just agrees that there is going to need to be like a little bit of a gender shift over here. But I feel like um, it's definitely opening the door for a lot of women because uh, rabbis feel like some of the stories we won't get unless women would be in the room or going to be the one who takes it in. So although I don't trust this based in, I think other organizations will come forward and do something. And I think this is a whole part of a bigger trend that's going to happen of like people realizing we just have to be part of the legal system. We have to be part of the more modern time. And we have to be more realistic about our community, our children, our responsibility, our authority, and more transparent. I really hope also that some people are going to be really scared, just literally scared. They will know they won't be able to hide. If Chaim Wilder didn't get away with it, they won't get away with it. We need people to be really scared. And we need people to know they will be caught. You know, this is the way humans work. We need people to be scared. I hope they will. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Nahomi, for being on the show this week and for talking about all of this and for all of your work in this arena. And thanks to all of you for listening to our show this week. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and edited by M. Lewis Gordon with assistance from Miri Miller and Shalhevet Schwartz and music provided by SoCalled. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people find the show. And you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show everywhere podcasts are available. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening.